Hello and welcome to The Knot, the final episode in this brand new three-part podcast series from Revolving Doors Agency. If you've been listening to the previous episodes, you'll know that Revolving Doors is a charity that works across England and alongside people with lived experience of the criminal justice system to make the revolving door of personal crisis and crime avoidable and escapable. I'm Claire Runacres, your host. And in this final episode, once more aided by some expert academics, practitioners, and those with lived experience, we'll be exploring how poverty, trauma, and multiple disadvantage are knotted together, and how we can better respond to these complex interconnections. And as ever, we'll be doing our best to cut out the jargon, explaining what we mean by terms like multiple disadvantage with today's guests shortly. The academics and practitioners you'll hear from in this series were all commissioned by Revolving Doors Agency to write an essay on this issue, which is being collated for an edited collection. The focus of these podcasts is to assemble these contributors to explore together their research and conclusions. What needs to change at a policy, service and community level to unpick the knotted mess of poverty, trauma and multiple disadvantage that can cause so much damage and chaos for people? And once again, we're also going to hear from someone who's been directly affected by these knotted issues, which led them into the criminal justice system, and ask them what they make of the research findings. So in this episode, we'll be exploring knots around childhood trauma, adversity, and multiple disadvantage. We'll be looking at three different frameworks for understanding and unpicking these knots. Adverse childhood experiences, capabilities, and human rights. Joining us from Middlesex University in London is Professor Antonia Bifalco, Professor of Lifespan Psychology and Director for the Centre for Abuse and Trauma Studies. We'll also hear from Miranda Keast, an independent researcher who conducted her research with Fulfilling Lives Lambeth, Southwark and Lewisham, also based in London. And joining us from a little further afield from Scotland is Dr Michael Smith, Associate Medical Director for Mental Health and Addiction Services for NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde. And later we'll be hearing from Sue, and finding out how Michael's, Antonia's and Miranda's comments chime, or don't, with her own personal experience and any further thoughts she has for solutions to the issues discussed. So, let's start with you, Antonia. In your essay, you talk about adverse childhood experiences. Can you tell us more about what these are and their impacts in childhood and later life? Um, Well, the term adverse childhood experiences, sometimes shortened to ACE, really covers a wide range of experiences and was featured very much in a piece of American research, which was looking at long-term health impacts, for instance, on diabetes, etc. But for me, um, the focus is more on childhood trauma, which are particular severity of maltreatment to children. So in other words, um, adverse childhood experiences covers a very broad range of things like neglect and abuse, but also a negative family context and neighbourhood context, for instance, parental illness or poverty. So it's really rather a broad um, expression to cover lots of ills in childhood. Um, So my research has really been about trying to refine that and and specify which particular experiences seem to have um, the most impact on mental health issues later in life. 
And we know that uh, neglect and abuse have really strong impacts on uh, mental health in later life. The impacts in the terms of, say, relationships? Yes, the, the model that I sort of favour really is an attachment model where it's looking very much at relationships. So there was damage done to the child in the original relationships where the abuse was from parental figures or trusted figures. And then that can um, be maintained in terms of having a very distrustful approach to relationships later and having a sort of patterns of relating which are rather unhealthy in terms of overly dependent or overly autonomous or angry or fearful. And that can impede getting close to others in later life. And they're also physical and neurological impacts, aren't there? Yes, it is a very complex area. I'm a psychologist and have focused a lot on the relational and cognitive and emotional aspects. But in addition to that, there are genetic impacts. I wouldn't say there were genetic causes, but some genetic impacts as well as around stress hormones. And of course, brain development in the most extreme cases of, say, neglect. So we always have to bear in mind that there's a sort of physical substrata but there's obviously the social context as well as the interpersonal as well. Many dimensions then. Um, Michael, your essay is entitled Adversity and Injustice, Reframing and Claiming Our Responsibilities. Can you tell us what you mean by adversity in this context? Yes, well, I would absolutely agree with what Antonio has just been saying. So, I mean, adversity is just different kinds of stress and harmful experiences that people may have. I mean, definitely in childhood, but it has a big impact, but also in adulthood. And just my own perspective on this really began, I, I'm, I work as a psychiatrist, so I was working in a mental health clinic, particularly trying to support people to recover from depression. And in that context, so many people, uh, the, their experience of trauma and adversity is a big influence on their mental health issues. And so I really started having an interest in ACEs from a clinical point of view, adverse childhood experiences. And like Antonio was saying, there's no doubt that they can really increase the risk of a whole number of health problems later in life. And I guess, I mean, as Antonio was saying, there's about 10 kinds of adverse childhood experiences in the original studies, but then that wasn't what people were speaking to me about. Actually, there's quite a lot of other kinds of adversity as well. So things like severe bullying or bereavements or living in poverty or experiencing discrimination and racism would also, I think, count as forms of adversity that can impact on people. So a wider definition perhaps has been used before, um, why do you think reframing is necessary when it comes to this area? It's a really good question. And actually, it's something we spent a lot of time thinking about. So from a clinical perspective, obviously, our main concern and focus is the person who needs support to recover from their experiences. But if you step back a bit from a population health point of view, the question is, why do so many people experience ACEs and other forms of adversity? And in that context, we need to try and think not only the people we need to help, who've had the experience, but actually to try and stop them from happening in the first place. And I think when you try to turn to that second aspect of it, thinking in clinical terms about the impact on the bodies of people is not so relevant. I think it's much more helpful to try and come at it from a social justice perspective. And you talk about a capabilities approach. What, what is that? Okay, so the capabilities was an attempt really from the late 80s, 90s by somebody called Amartya Sen, who was an economist and a philosopher, to think about what are the limitations on people that prevent them from realizing their full potential? And he was a bit frustrated with some of the financial measures. So there's absolutely no doubt that poverty has a big impact on people's life chances, but that's not the only way to think about it. 
And so what Sen was trying to do was to think about all the other things that could impair your life chances. And Martha Nussbaum, a colleague of his, developed these. It's almost like there are 10 aces, which are bad things that might happen to you growing up. And there are also 10 capabilities in the way Nussbaum presented it, which are almost the opposite. They are the 10 things that you need to achieve a minimum in, in order to live well. And so that would include things like health or education, but also things like play or access to green space. And two bits of it, which we may come to later, which I think are really important around control over your life and affiliation and connection with other people. So it's like ACEs were the negative side and capabilities are a more positive aspect. Miranda, in your essay, you talk about a human rights approach to multiple disadvantage. What do you mean by multiple disadvantage and what would a human rights approach evolve? Thanks, Claire. Um, so I wrote this paper when I was working at Fulfilling Lives Lambeth Southwark Lewisham, which was one of the 12 programmes funded by the National Lottery Community Fund across England. And the approach that they took towards multiple disadvantage was thinking about um, those intersecting experiences of being homeless or being at risk of home experiencing homelessness, um, using substances, being involved in the criminal justice system in some way and having mental health needs in some way. So that was the combination that was used to describe multiple disadvantage. And in terms of the human rights side of it, I must confess at this stage, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a human rights practitioner in some way, but actually that was the point that um, I was thinking about that kind of led me to write the paper because human rights, I think, is quite a powerful concept. And it was one that in my background, working with people who'd been homeless over the last sort of 13 years or so, it was a concept that didn't really seem to be very apparent and didn't seem to be used very much in the direct work. And so what I was really trying to do in the paper was just to think about, take a kind of exploratory approach as to how can human rights as a framework, as a lens, be used in thinking about how people approach working with people facing multiple disadvantage. So it's a bit like what Michael was saying about the capabilities. There's a sort of inward negative looking approach or there is an outward wider looking approach. And when you're talking about empowering people to understand their human rights, particularly people from a disadvantaged background, then then that's an empowering thing to do. Absolutely. And as Michael was saying, the key part of the capabilities approach is around choice and autonomy. It's not a prescriptive model and saying that everybody must do certain things but it's the concept is around if you have the the choice and the freedom and the capabilities to do these things in life you're more likely to be leading a fulfilled and happier life if you can make those choices for yourself and in the paper I try to show how occasionally systems or perhaps more than occasionally can restrict some of those choices and services with the best will in the world they may be trying to offer support in a particular way but that doesn't actually always translate to people having real choice and control about their lives. And actually reading your paper I mean you do that very effectively by talking about three people you, you share the stories of Silver, Henry and Victor. Can you tell me why you selected those people to talk about? Absolutely. I will just say at this point as well that those are changed for anonymity. The premise of the paper was discussions that I held with colleagues who worked at Fulfilling Lives, Lambeth, Southwark and Lewisham, predominantly colleagues who themselves had their own 
experience of facing multiple disadvantage. And our discussions came through three different case studies that we had been thinking about that did represent some of the problems that we thought were faced within the systems that are there to support people. And so it was those conversations I was having with my colleagues, looking at our experiences from within the programme, trying to support people and seeing where those barriers were. Can you tell us a little bit about those people? I mean, I, I love the way that you gave a little summary of their personal history mainly to begin with based on you know the disadvantages they suffered and then you ended up with a little sentence describing who they were as people you know I think one of them like playing Sudoku for instance. Absolutely the very brief summaries of the three case studies were intended to show some of those realities I suppose of the interactions between some of the issues that Michael and Antonia both pick up in their papers as well around different forms of abuse that can be suffered and different experiences around homelessness and substance use but one of the points that I make in the paper is about how important it is to see people beyond just negative experiences that have happened to them. People are so much more than that. And so I suppose it was a kind of attempt for the paper to practice what it preaches, that people are not just the negative things that have happened to them. And is that the message you'd like to come across from your piece of work, that that people are people as a whole? Absolutely. One of the messages, I think, it's definitely... um, one of the things that came across, and as I say, you know, this was a kind of collaborative effort with different colleagues that I had in fulfilling lives and with Southwark Lewisham, with colleagues who definitely felt that there's a fine balance, I think, to be had between uh, recognising the impacts of trauma on somebody's life. And Antonia's paper goes into those impacts um, very well in terms of perhaps some of those relationship attachment styles and things. Um, but also not defining somebody by that is absolutely crucial. And one of the other points that um, my paper really tries to make is around the importance of co-production and working with people and listening to people and recognising their strengths and everything that they have to offer and into the design and delivery of services. And I don't think you can do that if you only see people in a very reductive way as to a particular form of abuse or a particular negative experience that they've had. Antonia, what what was the main thing that you wanted people to take home from your piece of work? Well, just perhaps following on from that point Miranda made, it's really to sort of hear the voice of the person who has suffered from abuse or maltreatment or different adverse experience and to understand the context and situations in which it happened and, you know, what that sort of patterning or configuration was for them. And and I take the point along with their resiliences and, and the positive things that have happened. And the way that I've conducted research over the years is very much to um, interview people and ask about their life histories in order to get all that nuance. And um, one of the problems about some of the methodology around the ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences, it's been very reductive in terms of a brief questionnaire with yes, no answers. The thing is, it worked. It worked in in predicting um, ill health, but it just glosses over so much in terms of people's context, what happens to them, how severe it is. I think, um, Michael, you also made that point that we just don't know the level of severity of some of these experiences, and that makes a big difference to um, later impacts. I've tended to use um, a vulnerability model, and I, I take the point about capabilities, and I did enjoy reading both your papers on that because I wasn't familiar with it. I tend to use the risk resilience kind of one, but what I like about it is it's very rounded in terms of looking at individuals and and 
what opportunities they have or they've missed in a way if they've had adverse experience. Um, and of course, you know, coming down to social disadvantage, I think poverty does play a, a causative role in maltreatment and some of the other ills that occur. And um, Michael, what lasting impression do you want people to have got from the, your piece of work? Yes, I think as Antonia is saying, it's so important to obviously remember the harm and the stress of people experiencing the adverse events at the time that they happen. But I also wanted to think about this kind of a long chain reaction of events that follows those adverse experiences, which can actually last a lifetime. And we've all got a responsibility to do what we can to try and support that. And if there's one thing that really helps ACEs, it's a long-standing supportive relationship. The research is really clear on that. And I just wanted to echo um, Miranda's point, really, where sometimes even when individuals or systems are really trying to be helpful, with the best will in the world, sometimes they put their own needs before that of the person they're meant to be helping. And Miranda had a great example in her paper of, you know, if a woman's experienced sexual assault, it's really not very helpful or respectful to expect her to wait a long time in a waiting room full of men. Although that, in a sense, that's a human rights approach, it can also be really practical changes, which are really just about respect and empathy for somebody's previous experiences. So having heard from the academics and practitioners, I'd like to turn now to Sue. Hi, Sue. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you first get involved with Revolving Doors? Um, when I first came out of prison, I had two aims. I wanted to get some treatment for my mental health condition. And I was adamant that it wasn't going to be the community mental health services. I went private. I was lucky enough to be able to go private. And that's made a, a big impact on my life. The second thing was to become involved in organisations that wanted to make positive changes, whether it was mental health or criminal justice system. And now I'm lucky enough to be involved in various organisations, including Revolving Doors. I have a borderline personality disorder and I've never really had any help from the mental health services. And I, was, I managed my condition for years on antidepressants. I didn't know that I had a personality disorder until about three years ago, four years ago. I always thought I was just weird and whatever symptoms I had, I thought I should hide them because when I was a child, my auntie had ECT because she had bipolar and my mum told me that if I didn't mend my ways, then that's what I'd have. And that stuck with me for years and years. And if I think about it now, it's silly that I... I believed, I believed that, but I didn't know any difference anyway. So I, I tried to hide my condition. Eventually, I had to get help. So I went to the GP and said I needed something more than antidepressants. And that really was the beginning of a spiral that led to prison because he referred me to mental health services. And I'm sure you know that borderline personality disorder is highly stigmatised, misunderstood. So I, I didn't actually get any help. And I have a, a partner who is disabled and we eventually we were both so desperate that we decided to take our own lives. And so we tried with um, medications but my partner can't take her own because of her disability. So the plan was to 
to give her some and then me um, have some. But I panicked and called the crisis team because I thought this is not going to work and she's going to end up in a worse condition. Uh, from there, I was charged with attempted murder. So although I was never, well, I was never charged, I was arrested, but I was never charged. But during the time it took to drop the case, it was eight months. And during that time, I, I, um, I would sleep on my car at night in service stations because I couldn't bear to be in the house on my own without my partner. She was forced into a nursing home with people with dementia, but she was only 60. My car was searched and I had a knife in my car because I used to cut my partner's food up if we had a takeaway or something in the car. And I went to prison for 12 months for that offence. On my fifth day, I panicked and set fire to my cell and was given another 12 months. So I had a two-year sentence. Um, when I was 18, I, um, I actually chased an abusive boyfriend into the, the street with a knife. And because of that, even though there was many, many years in between, I was looked on as a, um, uh, having an affinity for knives, I think the, the judge said. So I didn't actually serve the whole two years because, as you know, you serve half. So after a year, I came out on licence. But I have severe attachment issues. And I was attached to my probation officer and I was very angry at not getting any help from anywhere. This was before I, I had a private therapist. So I, I sent a nasty email saying how sick I was of not getting any help. And, and because of that, I was recalled and spent another six months in prison. So when I came out, I was determined that I, I would try and change things for other people in similar circumstances, especially with borderline personality disorder. And I do run support groups. Uh, we have over 100 members, and I know things have not changed. I know that it's still stigmatised, and they come to us in desperation. There's a lot of people in prison with personality disorders. It's, uh, it, it, you know, it's hard to explain how, how I feel and trying not to be angry. I'm not angry about what happened to me. I'm angry about what's still happening. In what way do you think your childhood affected the things that have happened to you through your life? I think abandonment issues caused the attachment issues. And I, I, I think... You were abandoned as a child, were you? My father was very violent against all of us, including my mum. So she would leave. But I didn't, never knew where she was. And then she'd come back. And then she'd leave. And then she'd come back. And so I would spend a lot of time walking the streets trying to find her. And other things like it made me very introverted. It made me withdrawn, suspicious of everyone. I was suspicious of everyone. And I think that had an effect on how the mental health services looked at me when I was older because I, I probably, I looked, I might have looked like I was arrogant or something. I don't know, but I, I didn't trust them. I didn't trust anyone. 
And there was a definite lack of understanding there. So how do you think that the system should be different to respond to people like you? I've never been comfortable with lists and criteria. I find them exclusive. But I think you've got to look at the whole person. I know that's easy to say, but I think there's too much emphasis on outcomes as far as services go. If I don't self-harm, if I don't attempt suicide, and if I don't offend, that's an outcome. But it's not a measurable outcome. So it's been explained to me that it doesn't count because the NHS and, and services have to measure things in order to get further funding. So they can't measure something intangible like not offending. I think that needs to be addressed. And also to get away from the culture of punishment for people with multiple disadvantages and more understanding of why someone is acting the way they are. What did you think about Miranda's point about co-production? As in, you know, people with lived experience working with practitioners to to change the way the system works. I think it's marvellous if it works, but uh, in my experience, there's been too much consultation and not enough co-production. And it's not the same, is it? (laughs) Some people say it is. It's not. It's no good making a decision and then saying, right, we're going to ask an organisation what they think. That means it's co-produced. That's what's going on in my home county at the moment. And I'm trying to speak up and say, well, that's not co-production. You need people on committees. You need decision makers who have got lived experience. Not after the event, not after the decision. So you would like a greater voice for people who've been, say, in your situation? I would, and I think it works. I mean, it works at Revolving Doors, the kind of work we've done. I'm Prison Partnership Board, the East Midlands Prison Partnership partnership board through health and justice lived experience panel and I feel comfortable enough to bring issues to the board that they wouldn't necessarily think of because they've not been there so for example going out to hospital from prison just that's just an example I can bring that to the board and say these are the difficulties whereas they don't look into the nitty-gritty if you like you know into the finer details. And one last question, if I may. Would you say that your interactions with the support services, did they make the traumatic experiences of the early part of your life, did they make it worse? My first interaction was when I was seven and I had nervous tics. And I saw a child psychologist, but because my parents didn't like it, I never went back. And then I was in a psychiatric unit at 14 and a special school, I had a a different child psychologist then and I felt that he's been the only person that ever understood. He did understand. I've seen my records from that period and the things that he wrote, and and I can resonate with it, absolutely. He knew about the attachment. He he called it inadequate personality disorder at the time. This is going back a few years. But I didn't know that at the time till I saw my records. But he did want to help and he tried. He actually sat me down one day and says, what do you want to happen? And I've never forgot that. That meant the world, you know, because I I could say, well, I don't want to live at home. 
he tried to to do what he could. He tried to find a foster family and things. So I've never had that since. So you'd say some of your interactions have been very positive, but others have not been. As a child, yeah, I think they were more positive. Having said that, I did go to the police when I was a child and said that my dad was going to kill my mum and they told me to go away. And then I went back and said, well, he's going to kill me. And they said, well, you should behave yourself. (laughs) So that wasn't quite as positive. And I did have a distrust. I've always had a distrust of uh, most services, except for this child psychologist I met when I was 14. Um, One final question. What did you think about all the, the research that we've just been talking about now? I think it's great. I think it's good to highlight it. It's just what we do with it, isn't it? Because... There's been so many studies, I've read so many reports, we all know what the problems are, really, but what do we do about it? So that's that's the question, isn't it? How can we convince services to change the culture and involve people with lived experience more? It's, it's hard to change that, I think, but it's necessary. Thank you, Susan. Very powerful testimony there. Thank you for sharing your story and a different perspective on the issues Lots of food for thought. Now, Michael, Miranda and Antonia, you heard Sue's reflections there. Does her story connect with what you've been told in your research? Uh, Michael, let's start with you. Yes, it's absolutely. Yes, it does. And I'm, I'm really grateful for Sue for just talking through something so moving and also so clearly. And I guess the thing that strikes me is as Sue tells her narrative, it really makes sense. But the extent to which the professionals and the systems involved have failed to understand what was happening for her is really part of the problem here. And I think it still persists. So, I mean, I certainly agree borderline is is heavily stigmatised in the mental health world. And it's taken us a long time to to turn that round and begin to offer proper support to people with experiences like Sue. I think as Sue was speaking, that there were a couple of things I'd like to pick up on. One was the extent to which Sue's testimony echoes a statement you often hear in relation to ACEs and which was actually in Miranda's essay, which is, it's not what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you that is the way to to move forward in this. And unfortunately, the focus of systems is very often on what's wrong and not, and people don't listen, as Sue said, to people's actual experience and instead tend to respond with blame, shame and punishment to people's experience. And again, Sue's described that so clearly and so movingly. So I would hope that what we need to do is to move away from blame, shame and punishment towards something more like acceptance and curiosity and empathy. And those qualities might help us to avoid some of the difficulties that Sue's had to endure during her life. Miranda, does that ring true with you? It absolutely does, yeah. And again, Sue, thank you so much for sharing that with us and for taking the time to discuss with us as well. I think one of the most powerful things, well, actually, all of it was powerful, but one of the things you said, Sue, that really struck me is why is someone acting the way they are? And in the way that you have just spoken to us, you very clearly explained what was going on for you and and everything is very clear, yet you used the phrase um, a culture of punishment. And I think that that really sort of resonates with with actually elements of all three of our papers and I think the way that you describe Sue punishment obviously can be in quite a 
a very, very obvious sense in terms of prison time. But I think all those smaller interactions with services can sometimes feel, and this is what I've sort of experienced through my work, being told, well, you don't meet this criteria. So I'm afraid we can't help you. Um, Or, you know, we've got this waiting list and you're not on that, unfortunately. So we can't help you. And that sort of those constant smaller negative interactions that can be perceived as as more feeding into that culture of punishment where someone isn't feeling that they're being understood, isn't feeling that they're being listened to. You spoke so powerfully, Sue, about the person who just said, what do you want to happen to you? That's a very, very basic thing. It's a very simple question to ask. And yet that stands out for you as a real moment. And I think that should really be echoed through through all of our services and systems. Antonia, how did Sue's story mesh with your own research? Well, it was very powerful. Thank you, Sue, for for describing it. I was really struck that you did focus on mistrust. And I think that is central to a lot of the relational problems that people have, but also to whether they can access services and whether they are trusting of practitioners. And I think you described really only trusting one practitioner who was very good, but others, you know, just made you feel rejected and uh, stigmatized. And so I think, you know, we can talk about what uh, services should be put in place, etc. But I think it's coming back to those micro interactions, you know, not feeling rejected, being asked what you want, having enough time for trust to develop, because it's not instant. So very often, um, services offered are, are, um, are just too brief, and people are put on waiting lists and all these sorts of things, which are not really attending to their dignity and not saying, trust me, because unless you've got trust, I think a lot of these services don't really have the effect they should. Well, people won't come if they don't trust. You know, they, they'll just refuse help or, or not seek help if their trust levels are, you know, if they have high mistrust, shall we say. Antonia, having listened to what Sue said, are there any fresh conclusions or solutions that come from her story? Well, I think really this being listened to, um, we've all said it in various ways in our papers, but I think um, the way Sue described her experience shows that she just wasn't listened to. People weren't asking her story what happened to her and what she wanted. And so that it's really highlighted that. I think we probably just need um, greater understanding in our services about some of the harms that can be done from early maltreatment and how it affects people's perceptions and feelings and how they might appear when they come to a service, but that might be a mask for um, a lot more vulnerability underneath. So, for instance, um, I know some of the work that I've done with services with young people in residential care, how the staff are always um, really um, having to deal with a lot of anger but not really seeing the anxiety that lies behind the anger. So they're adolescents who who might be very oppositional, um, aggressive, but are really very frightened of abandonment and rejection. And just being able to get those ideas across, I think, to practitioners helps them to see things in a different way. And, And as has been said by the others, not so much punishment, but care to try and get that back into the services. Um, And I think Sue's description of sort of dreadful punishment for things is is a salutary one. Mm, So do you think it's about helping practitioners 
ask the right questions in the right kind of way? For me, because I'm also an, an, an educator, I don't work in services primarily. But um, yes, I think you can get a culture change if people begin to see what's happened to people and to understand it in a different way and, and to be much more sort of patient, really, and tolerant, having additional empathy when it's sort of explained more fully to them what might have happened. Miranda, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, I'm not sure that there's any of us here who argue with having a more empathetic approach. Um, in terms of fresh conclusions from listening to Sue, I think, Sue, you highlighted something else that isn't within my paper, but I think does draw on some of the other topics, which was around that emphasis on outcomes and whose outcomes are these. And I think, you know, your description of saying, well, if I feel I'm safe and well, you know, isn't that enough? But I think sometimes the way that services are sort of designed is whose outcomes are they in what time frames? Uh, Antonia has been talking about the importance of trust and you've clearly highlighted that, Sue, but that's uh, not something that you can always build within a, a six-month service timescale. It's something that kind of happens over time and sometimes outcomes can be quite prescriptive, I think, in terms of what the service wants to achieve by when and people don't necessarily always fall into sort of very clear boxes like that that can make sure that those boxes are ticked in those in that way. So I think it's not necessarily a fresh conclusion for me because I have thought a lot about that in my work. But I think, Sue, you've highlighted that very well, that outcomes should be what the person feels that if they're getting what they wanted. Michael, did you find Sue allowed you any fresh conclusions? Yes, I, I was like Miranda, I picked up on the same issue about outcomes, actually. And I think uh, the system clearly has a lot of work to do to catch up. And I think training and education would be a big part of that. But I think it's also something to do with if we are to respond to people seeking help with trust and respect and empathy and understanding, well, the system in turn has to support those practitioners in the same way. Do you see what I mean? So that as a system, we need to show the same trust, respect and understanding to our clinicians and practitioners as we expect them to share with uh, service users in order to help. And actually, um, sometimes that's difficult. And that was why I picked up on what Sue said about outcomes. So the system itself doesn't always trust practitioners to deliver a good outcome. And so it's always trying to measure what they do. And another thing, the system is very, very anxious about risk. And there's very little tolerance for people taking risk. And I think these, I'm not saying that people should take unnecessary risks, obviously, but sometimes we have to allow people to engage in a relationship in its own way. So I, I think part of changing things for the better means that we need to help the system itself to be more trusting and more understanding. And actually, that's quite a big challenge. So we've talked about education of the practitioners and trust. What other ways do you think are there that people should respond to improve the situation? I think there's always a risk in any system or any organisation that to some extent, the, the purpose of what we're doing is captured by the people in it. As Miranda said, you know, sometimes that the system acts in its own interest rather than the interest of the people that thinks it's trying to help. I think, as we said all the way through this uh, really interesting discussion, I think probably the best way to get around that is to have the people affected by decisions in the room taking those decisions. And as Miranda says, not coming in, as Sue says, actually, not coming at the end to, to, on a consultation, but to be in at the very beginning where the assumptions are made and the objectives are laid out. I think that's probably the way to really make a change. Antonia, can I ask you, ultimately, whose responsibility do you feel it is to respond to these knots of childhood trauma, adversity and multiple disadvantage? 
Well, all of us in a way, because it's a very common experience and we will all come across it in different professions, different aspects of our lives. But clearly there are services that um, people get to that need to, I think, be aware of of really the complexity and um, how much of people's lives it affects, not simply whether they have disorder A or B, but, you know, how much of their functioning or their situation and environment might be adversely affected. And to just help in the different ways, you know, that different agencies working together can do. And for people just to be more tolerant, really, who work in services and more understanding of, you know, because this affects a large proportion of the population. One in five people have probably have had neglect or abuse. And so understanding it as part of life, really. And we all have to take responsibility. If we saw a child abuse, we would be responsible. So in the same way, if we see somebody who's suffering in some way, we're all responsible. But as has been said by Michael Miranda, who are more involved in in services, you know, this has this culture has to change so that there's um, more tolerance within it for staff as well as service users, I think, to um, allow more empathy there. Um, Miranda, who would you say whose responsibility is it to change things? Well, I would agree with Antonia in that everybody, we all live in this society and therefore I believe everyone should model the way that you want society to be. So I don't see it as being one specific person, one specific agency. I think it's interesting when we talk about services and systems, how wide do you go with that? Because there are some services that you can quite clearly relate to certain issues that we've talked about, such as community mental health teams or substance use teams or or things like that. But everybody is, is interconnected. And one of the things that comes up in my paper is the recognition that people will go to GPs, people will go to job centres. And so actually those that understanding of different experiences that people have had and the ways that people can respond to those and how we respond empathetically shouldn't just be, I think, confined to certain services that we feel are more likely to come into contact with and people who've had certain experiences. I think it's a much wider, broader societal responsibility. Michael, would you agree with that? Yes, I absolutely would agree. And I think even if if we're not directly involved in taking decisions that may cause harm to others, we're nonetheless part of a society that actually makes those choices. I'll maybe just give the the one obvious example is that, that there is one adverse child experience or one ACE that is state-induced and that's putting parents in prison. So that creates, that generates an adverse childhood experience. And Britain has a very unusually high rate of imprisonment. And I think that there's a direct public health step that could be taken by the state if we were simply to imprison fewer people would be one way to, to do less blame, shame and punishment. Um, but I think we're we're all complicit in political decisions, whether it's the hostile environment for our migrants or whether it's decisions to take money away from in terms of benefit changes for families with more than two children, etc. These these all have a direct impact on childhood adversity. And I think we all have a shared responsibility to do what we can to to stop that. So policymakers have a responsibility. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. If there's one one thing that you think that would make the most difference, is it the tr- better training of clinicians? Is it a development of empathy in, in the general population at school? I mean, I, I mean, I'm not somebody who can offer you the answers. You, you guys are the experts. I'm wondering what you think would make the most difference. 
Okay, well, I, I would certainly go with early intervention. I mean, there's been a lot of policy written on this, but I have a feeling that this isn't now happening as it was before. So the early years are really important um, in terms of a child's development and um, has an influence on their later life. So I think just acting as early as possible in any adverse situation to try and um, stop it getting worse and not add to the burden with other service or other constraints, really. Miranda? Absolutely agree with Antonia on that one. So I will try and pick something different. I will say decision-making being led by people with lived experience of whatever they're making decisions about. And that's not to say that one person with one type of experience can speak for everybody with that type of experience. But I think broader decision-making accountability between lots of different people who have that experience would be incredible. And as Sue points out, a lot of things are very much at the consultation side of things, which is not co-production. And Michael, you're one magic bullet, so to speak. Thank you. Yes, I think I would echo what Miranda said. I mean, there are so many things that could be done and so much work that needs to change things. But I think the one kind of fundamental change that would help all that to move along would be participation. So the people who are affected by these decisions have a voice in what's been decided about them. And that brings us to the end of the episode and also of this series of The Knot, responding to poverty, trauma and multiple disadvantage. Another fascinating debate, offering insights into the way that childhood trauma, adversity and multiple disadvantage are interlinked, along with potential solutions. A huge thank you to all of my guests in this episode. Professor Antonio Bifalco, Professor of Lifespan Psychology and Director for the Centre for Abuse and Trauma Studies from Middlesex University. Miranda Keast, an independent researcher who conducted her research with Fulfilling Lives Lambeth, Southwark and Lewisham. Dr. Michael Smith, Associate Medical Director for Mental Health and Addiction Services for NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde. And a special thank you to Sue for sharing her story and a fresh perspective on the research. And also, I want to thank all of my guests across the series. I've been your host, Claire Runacres. And if you want to find out more about the work that Revolving Doors do, or to get involved yourself, please go to www.revolving-doors.org.uk. You could also join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on Twitter is at RevDoors, and on Instagram, at Revolving Doors Agency. And it would be great if you could rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do subscribe to the series and listen back to the previous two episodes on identities and multiple disadvantage and on poverty, place and multiple disadvantage. Until next time, thanks for listening. Revolving Doors, the Knot series, has been a Listen production, produced by Kelly Redmond.